Hello and welcome to On The Ledge Podcast, the show that treats your plants like family. Uh Uh-oh, Grandma's got thrips again. How are you diddling? It's Jane Perrone here, your host. And today I'm going to be answering your, yes, your questions. Well, as many of them as I can fit into the show. We'll be looking at conservatories, grow lights, the everfresh tree, and a poorly gapertia, and more. And we'll be hearing from a listener. His name is German. Thank you for all your kind comments in the wake of my 200th episode. What a ride it's been, and let's stay saddled up because there's plenty more where that came from. Oh, and I did want to play one thing that was missed out of episode 200 because it came in a little bit too late. Yes, it was the Plant Daddies from Plant Daddy Podcast, fashionably late. Here's what they had to say. Hey, Matthew and Stephen here from Plant Daddy Podcast. What changes have we noticed since 2017? Well, we both felt the distinct need to have our own houseplant conversations off to the side of the social gatherings we were attending. (laughs) And we started a podcast, for God's sakes, because we were hoping to connect with like-minded plant fans, and we were pretty sure they were out there. (laughs) But people told us it was too niche. But now... Yeah, but now, friends and I regularly exchange photos of new plants after a trip to the plant store. We swap cuttings and newly propagated plants because we're excited to share with someone who will appreciate them. And it's even sort of become the sort of small talk topic that's catching up with weather tv and sports to get you through social gatherings with strangers without becoming the weird plant person yep it's gone mainstream jane and we're sure you had something to do with that thanks and happy 200th episode do love the plant daddies thank you chaps and you can hear me in their show on a couple of occasions if you check out the thematic guide to on the ledge episodes you'll find there's a section of all the other podcasts i've appeared in that's worth looking at when there's a week where there's no on the ledge episode because you can still hear my dulcet tones and in there you'll find the listings for the episodes i've done with the plant daddies Stephen and Matthew, which includes a fascinating chat about Thalassa Crusoe, one of my major houseplant heroes. Thank you to those who have joined my Patreon community this week. Sally upgraded from crazy plant person to legend to unlock all the exclusive content that's there. And Hilda, Jason, Catherine, Dixie, Bronwyn and Bronwyn Yes, there were two Bronwyns, separate people. I did check. (laughs) Both from the US, but one from Rhode Island and one from North Carolina. Must be something in the air for the Bronwyns right now. They all became legends as well. Thank you to all of you. And if you're an existing Patreon subscriber, you may find that your feed right now is a bit confusing because of those 50 new episodes that have dropped. In other words, I've archived episodes one to 50 and they've ended up in your Patreon feed. I am working on tagging everything so that if you're looking at the feed from the web version, you should be able to click on the Annex Relief tab or the main podcast tab and that way get to the episodes you need. I'm sorry for the confusion. I will write something explaining all of that. But I'm sorry if your feed's a bit crowded with stuff at the minute, but it is the only way I could find to get everything on there. Unfortunately, Patreon doesn't have the best uh, organizational system for its posts. 
As ever, though, if you've got any questions or issues or problems with Patreon and you're a subscriber, do just drop me a line on there. I try to respond really quickly and solve your problems. So don't hesitate to get in touch. Right, let's crack on with the very first question. It comes from Erica from Washington State. And Erica's problem has to do with grow lights in the winter. Erica's house doesn't get as much natural light as the plants would like. And Erica writes, I have been putting some plants that require more light under a grow light once in a while, sometimes for a day, sometimes a few hours. Is this a good idea or am I shocking them? So she sent me a picture of some of her, looks like some succulents under a grow light. And this is, I think, a really interesting question. If you can't have a permanent setup where your plants are under a light, and as I've got in my office here, I've got shelving with lights on a timer that go on and off, so they're just under those lights continuously. What about giving your plants a bit of a holiday under a grow light for a few hours or a day here and there? Is that benefiting them or is it causing them problems? I'd love to know your insights into this one. But here's my take on it. I think if you've got a plant that has very specific needs in order to do something, I'm thinking here specifically of, say, a Christmas cactus, something where a particular programming of day and night length triggers blooming, then putting it under a grow light for a few hours every now and again might be problematic because you'd be sending that cycle completely out of whack. But I think with a lot of plants like the succulents in your picture, they probably will benefit from a few hours under a grow light, even if it's erratic. If you can imagine in nature, there might be brighter days and cloudier days. So plants aren't unused to the idea of light fluctuating. And I think any amount of extra light that you can give for a lot of plants will probably be of benefit. Personally, what I would do is try to pick the plants that are most prone to suffering from problems as a result of lack of light. Succulents that like to stretch out like a firework, like an echeveria, maybe put those under the grow lights uh, on a regular basis and maybe sacrifice a few that are easier to fix if they do get etiolated. So I'm thinking of things like maybe a jade plant, you know, with that crassula ovata, you could just chop it back if it becomes etiolated. I think it's a matter of personal choice. And I, I don't think you're going to do any harm by adding some grow lights in for a few hours here and there. One caveat to that, though, what I would say is if you stick a plant really close to a grow light, and I can see from Erica's picture that this isn't the case with her plants. But if you take a succulent, say, that's been stuck in a really dark corner and then stick it a couple of centimetres below a grow light, you're probably going to burn the plant. So yes, avoid poking it right under the grow light if it's not used to high levels of light. You can gradually move it closer to the grow light and it will adapt and in fact, I would say from your picture, Erica, I would recommend moving your plants a little bit closer to that light. But just be aware that if they are extremely close, they may fall prey to sunburn. And I've had this happen with aroids where they a leaf has accidentally been touching a grow light and indeed they do get burned. So just be aware of the distance between the plant and the light. This will vary according to the power of your grow light. 
and the sensitivities of the plant. I mean, as always with, with succulents, I would say it's vital that they are experiencing cool, dry conditions. So if you've got a cactus or a succulent that is going under a grow light every few hours, every few days, then if it's cool and dry, a dry substrate and the fact that it's also cool will help to mitigate any problems caused by erratic light because the plant just will sense that it's not time to grow and won't be growing so much anyway. If your succulent is sitting in 21 degrees centigrade, warm room temperature and is being watered regularly, the effect of that light may be more dramatic in terms of causing your succulent to stretch. If you've got some tropical house plants, on the other hand, which will still be growing at this time of year, again, I think putting some light on them will be absolutely fine. If they're in active growth, then they'll be used to fluctuating light levels and I can't see it causing any problem. As ever, observe your plants. If you start to see something happening that looks like it's going wrong, then change your practice, try something else. Observing your plants is the best way of seeing what they need. And, you know, even just moving them a meter closer to the window, even in a dark room, can massively increase the amount of light they're getting. You know, opening the curtains, making sure that the windows are clean. All of these things can make a real difference to your plants in the winter. So if you've got any thoughts about Erica's question, do drop me a line on the ledgepodcast at gmail.com. Question two comes from Graham, who is in the UK, and it concerns a plant I've never heard of. Now, this does happen occasionally. I mean, interestingly enough, the array of houseplants that we grow today. Well, in many ways, as you'll discover if you read my forthcoming book, Legends of the Leaf, lots of the plants that we think are kind of new and exciting have been around for a long time in cultivation. But this is one I've never heard of before. Graham tells me that it's called the Everfresh tree, Latin name Pithosolobium confertum, and Graham has discovered this via the medium of the interwebs, um, and it says that it looks like a large version of the sensitive plant, Mimosa pudica, but grows into a pretty substantial tree-sized plant. And I think Graham has spotted this on Japanese sites and found that even it may be available in IKEA in Japan. Now, of course, Graham's thinking, oh, I love the look of this. I'd like to get one myself here in the UK, but can't find one online. Graham writes, I really don't get why it's not available here, as it doesn't appear too difficult to grow and is stunning. It would make a much more attractive alternative to a fiddle leaf fig. Well, Graham, if you're a regular listener to the show, you may have heard me say that I'm not a great fan of the fiddle leaf fig, but... I'm sure lots of FLF owners will be springing to its defence. Nonetheless, let's consider the question, can we get hold of an Everfresh tree for Graham in the UK at a reasonable price? Graham, I'm afraid the bad news is that I think the answer is no. This particular tree, the Everfresh tree, I discovered that although it's often given the Latin name Pithosolobium convertum. The accepted Latin name, the one the taxonomists prefer, is actually Albizia splendens. And it's a native of places like Borneo, Sumatra, and Thailand. And in the wild, it grows 
quite enormous actually. It gets up to, well, about 30 to 50 metres tall and the wood is used for furniture. It's a member of the Fabaceae family. So if you look at the seed pods and the seeds inside, they're basically bean-like. But if you have it as a small baby specimen, yes, it apparently grows well as a houseplant. But in the searches I've done and I've asked around and nobody seems to think that this plant is currently available as seed or as a plant in the UK. I have seen various people asking on different forums if it's possible to get hold of it and no one seems to be answering in the affirmative, either in the UK or the US. So I'm afraid, Graham, the answer as far as I know at the moment is no. But of course, that's where listeners come in because somebody listening I don't know, they might be starting their own Everfresh Tree Nursery for all I know. So do get in touch if you can offer some help to Graham on this plant. It is one of those curious things where it's popular in Japan and Singapore and Malaysia as a house plant, seems reasonably commonly grown indoors, but just isn't something that's featured over here. There may be reasons for that that I'm not aware of, but for now, it remains a bit of a mystery. I do love a mystery. And I'm sure we'll get some further updates as information trickles in about this plant. So do get in touch if you have any intel. So many of the questions that have come in are to do with winter here in the Northern Hemisphere. And this is another common theme. Camilla got in touch to ask about her conservatory This is a new house for Camilla and the conservatory is where the majority of Camilla's plants are hanging out right now. And Camilla writes that the only downside is that we're quickly descending into winter. Overnight, it seems to get really cold in there and Camilla is concerned about harming the plants. Camilla writes, I've looked into a freestanding radiator, but it could possibly cost upwards of 40 to 50 pounds to run per month. So I wondered if you may have any ideas to help save my gang. Now, I have a sort of conservatory on the back of my house. It is a glass roofed room. The walls are brick. Well, two walls are brick. And then the other wall is not actually a wall. It's an archway into my dining room. And it also connects my kitchen. And then at the end, there's patio doors. So I kind of have this problem. The difference is, is that because it's kind of an integral part of the house, that area of the house, the kitchen and the glass roofed room, both have underfloor heating. The major problem I have at the moment is that those patio doors are extremely drafty. So I'm trying to get those replaced. At the moment, my husband's just put some insulation tape around the door because it was just so drafty. So we're trying to keep that room from costing us too much money. But the underfloor heating is great in terms of just keeping it ticking over. The thermostats, I think, is set to about 17 degrees Celsius which is about 62, 63 Fahrenheit. So, I mean, it could go down as low as 15 in there without causing most of the plants in there any problems. If you've got a conservatory that's got glass roof, glass walls, you can be losing a lot of heat that way. It's really dependent on what you are growing in there. If you've got cacti and succulents, the vast majority of those will be absolutely fine in that conservatory, provided that you keep them cool and dry. As I said earlier, with the grow lights question, cacti and succulents, they like a cool, dry rest. So anything down to 
nearly freezing will be fine for a lot of cacti and succulents, provided that they are dry around the roots, because the thing that will kill them is not the cold, but the wet. Now, I'm going to assume that you've got some other plants in there that are not cacti and succulents. So the question is, how low can you go? Well, it really depends. In general, broad sweeping terms, anything that comes from a subtropical or tropical climate is going to struggle if the temperature gets below about 15 degrees centigrade. So we're talking about things like begonias, ferns, some of the aroids. There are plenty of things that will do well in there. Think about, I'm thinking of my old favourite Saxifraga stolonifera, the strawberry saxifrage, which is from Japan. I can cope with living outside in sheltered spots, so will be absolutely fine in your conservatory. I'm also thinking of things like heterohelix, which usually does terribly indoors when there's central heating, but in a cool conservatory could do very nicely. You could also grow things like if you want an architectural plant, you could grow things like Fatsia japonica, the false castor oil plant with those incredible glossy palmate leaves. Again, they often do badly in central heating, but love a cold conservatory. So assuming you don't want to shell out on extra heating costs and uh, anyone who's in the UK or follows the news about this country may be aware that we're in a bit of a gas crisis, an energy crisis, um, and energy bills are going up a lot at the moment. So we're all concerned to try to keep those down. If you don't want to go for heating and you feel like some of those plants just have to stay in there, what I would try to do is create a microclimate where they are sheltered and insulated against the worst of the cold. So that might take the form of setting up a little plastic greenhouse. You know, you can buy those little zip up plastic greenhouses. They're oftentimes a bit too flimsy to use outside, but as an extra layer inside your conservatory, that could work quite well at just keeping the temperature inside that second chamber that little bit warmer, just make sure there is some ventilation. So open up the greenhouse when it's warm in there during the day so you get some airflow. Otherwise, you may foster some fungal diseases and, and the like. I would also make sure that you move plants away from the windows. Don't let the leaves touch the freezing cold glass and just assess any particularly cold spots really advise you to get hold of a maximum minimum temperature gauge. There are loads of options on this. The one I have is called Therm Pro. I've got it here on the desk. I'm going to reach over for it. Um, but this is quite useful because it shows you a history of the max and minimum temperature. So I can see that in here in the office, it's been down to as low as 10 degrees centigrade and as high as 39.6 degrees centigrade. Obviously, this has been running for quite a while. And it also shows you the humidity, which is handy. So if you run one of these and you, maybe you could have a couple in different parts of the conservatory, you can see just how cold it gets overnight. And that will help you to assess whether you need to move some plants away or take any other action. You could also use something like horticultural fleece to drape over sensitive plants at night. Again, it's not ideal, but if you've got things that really can't move, this may be the way forward. The other thing you can do to help you keep your conservatory warm is look at installing blinds or curtains that will help to cut down on drafts and is a relatively low cost way of doing it. 
And just also checking round for any gaps in doors and things like that. As I said, with our doors, we found that there was just a big gap at the bottom that was letting in lots of cold air. So a little bit of work that way might help you too. But ultimately, it's just plant choice, really. And I would just have a really careful review of all your plants and figure out which ones just won't like those lower temperatures and and just focus on the ones that can and find a new home for the ones that are going to suffer. If you do decide to use a heater in there, there's a few options. You can use a a radiator, uh, an oil-filled radiator, a fan heater, just make sure that it's on a really accurate thermostat so the room is only being heated to the temperature that you need it to be at. And maybe that's not very many degrees above what it is naturally. So it may not cost you as much as you think, but the thermostat will allow you to really program it accordingly. I hope that helps, Camilla, and do let me know how your plants get on. More questions to come, but now it's time for Meet the Listener. And our guest this week is Listener German. My name is German. I'm an art director living in Long Beach, California. I live in a small one-bedroom house with over 100 plants, some of them indoors and some of them outdoors. But I'm lucky to live in a city where we have warm and sunny weather most of the year. So my plants tend to be growing year round. When did you get into houseplants and why? I've always had a couple of succulent plants in my patio, uh, but it wasn't until two years ago when my girlfriend Beth gifted me a mangarelia in a Dracaena Janet Cray in an effort to keep them alive and, you know, learn as much as I could about them. I read books, I read articles, and this kind of led me down a rabbit hole where I became completely obsessed with all types of plants. What's the latest addition to your houseplant collection? My newest plant is a philodendron jungle boogie, which is a hybrid of philodendron tortum and philodendron wendlandii. Complete the sentence, I love my houseplants because... I love my houseplants because they have taught me so much about nature. Um, I feel that I wasted a huge part of my life being blind to all the natural beauty just outside my door. And now I'm able to recognize trees and all the different plants just growing you know, down my street. Who is your houseplant hero? My houseplant hero is Roberto Berlemarx. He was a Brazilian landscape architect and designer who is known for having collected many arid species and saving them from extinction. He would ask bulldozer operators to hold back while they were building uh, roads through the Amazon jungle. And he was able to grab as many plants as he could while they were stopped. Name your plantagonist, the plant you simply cannot get along with. This has to be Geopertia orbifolia or Calithia orbifolia, which I have given so many chances, but it just doesn't like my house. It's kind of a shame because I really love its big round foliage and just the way it looks. If you would like to feature on Meet the Listener, get in touch. Don't be shy. I particularly want to hear from people who perhaps haven't been represented in the show before. So if you are in South America or Africa or Southeast Asia, I'm particularly keen to hear from you. 
get in touch on the ledge podcast at gmail.com and my wonderful assistant kelly will drop you the very simple instructions for taking part and now on with the questions and this one comes from adam who is the host of view from the potting bench which is a podcast that i've appeared on recently talking about houseplants who knew that i could nabber on about that subject now Adam has got a question about a begonia maculata. Now, I think this was quite a recent purchase, but the leaf tips are browning. And Adam had it in quite a shaded space, but it has moved it nearer to the light, but it's not in direct sunlight. And Adam says, I don't know what I'm doing. Well, whenever anyone says to me that a plant is been in a shaded space indoors, that gets me really alarmed because even what someone thinks is a quite a bright light spot in their home is often actually quite dark. So if you think it's shaded, it probably is super shaded. And that certainly won't have helped your new begonia, Adam. It's great that you've moved it into more light. Any move like that, I would recommend doing gradually because the plant will get shocked. As I said earlier with grow lights, it's the same with light for coming through the window. You want the transition to be gradual so the plant can get used to the new conditions. But I think with this begonia, it's probably not the whole story as to what's causing those browning tips. The trick that I found with begonias is to get them repotted quick, smart after you buy them into a really quite free draining mixture. And it was listener to the show, Tom Cranham, who really led the way with me on this it doesn't really matter what that drainage material is. Some people like to use Akadama, which is the baked clay substrate that's commonly used in bonsai. And this is one of the ingredients in Tom's special begonia mix. You can also use pumice, perlite, etc. I'll link in the show notes to a rather good Q&A that Tom did for greenroomsmarket.com, which goes into some of his begonia care tips. That's a useful thing to look at. But yeah, generally speaking, you need to make sure that substrate's really quite free draining. And then what I do is I group my begonias together in a big, deep salad bowl type dish. And at the bottom of that, there's a load of expanded clay pebbles, laker, lecker, whatever you prefer, which means that when I water, I water from the top generously, the water runs through that free draining substrate and into the expanded clay pebbles and then just sits there. That increases local humidity. The plants never sit in water, but they are surrounded by moisture. And that for me is the key to growing begonias. I'll post a picture of that in the show notes so you can see, but that's what works for me. Um, I think if you have a more claggy mix, you with a higher quantity of organic matter, I think it's harder to regulate moisture levels and therefore you tend to end up with an unhappy plant with brown tips to the leaves. It does also depend on the individual begonia and some of the lovely begonias that you're probably seeing on your social media feeds are just better off in a terrarium. Maculata though, that's not one of them. It should be okay in a regular room, but it really does so much better if you pot it in the right mix, that would be my top tip for begonias. And do go back and listen to the two begonia episodes that I did with Steve's leaves. Loads more begonia stuff in there. Delving back into the virtual 
post bag. I have a message here from West Devon in the UK, lovely part of the world. And the message comes from Dwan and concerns a tricky issue for UK houseplant growers, which is plant passports. Now, you may remember a while back I did an episode where I interviewed the UK's plant health chief, Nicola Spence, about this issue of plant passports, who needed to be registered to issue them and what was involved. And since then, things have changed a little bit. But before we get into that, let's look at Duan's question. So Duan writes, I bought a big Ionium a few years ago from my local nursery. And ever since I've been producing some 50-ish healthy cuttings. Good work. Now, as I am running out of friends to share my Ionium, I'm planning to sell them online. Do you think I need plant passports to start this backyard nursery? Great question. Well, (laughs) there's a few issues to unpick here. So first of all, what is a plant passport? Well, it's simply a document that tells you the origins of the plant, makes it traceable so that if there is a pest or a disease outbreak, the government can work out where it has come from. It can be stuck on the individual plant pot or it might be attached to a dispatch through the mail in the form of a piece of paper. But it basically allows the government, if there's suddenly an outbreak of uh, an unexpected pest that hasn't been seen in the UK before, it allows the government to figure out where that pest has come from and trace it back so they can stop it spreading. The main thing to consider as far as the APHA, the Animal and Plant Health Agency that deals with these plant passports is concerned is that if you're selling stuff online, then you do need to register and you will need to be inspected for plant passports. So if you're selling them online, as in you're not just selling them for the cost of postage, but you're making some kind of profit from them, whether that's 1p, £5, £25, you're selling them online. So you might be advertising them on your own website or in a Facebook group or on Etsy or on eBay. You need to register for plant passports. If, however, you were going to be selling them just from your front garden, so you'd be advertising them online, but only getting people to pick them up via your house, then in that case, you would not need to be registered for plant passports. That, as I understand it, is the state of play. Now, caveat, there does seem to be differing views on this. And if you speak to individual plant health inspectors for your area, they may have a different view. I've heard of sellers being told, oh, well, you only sell a few a year. Therefore, even though you're making a profit, it's a small one, so you don't have to be registered. Other people will say, you're making any kind of profit, therefore you need to be registered and you need to be registered to to give plant passports. So there's two stages. One is you need to be registered to say that you're selling this stuff. And then the second stage is that you are authorised to give out plant passports. And that's the bit that costs you the money because you would then have to be inspected by a plant health inspector. So I think from your scenario, Duan, given that you're thinking of selling them online and then I presume posting them to people, you would have to be authorised to do plant passports, which would therefore require you to be visited by the plant health inspector just so they can check that you are up to speed in terms of dealing with pests and diseases. Whether you think that's worth the hassle 
is another question. I should also say that I think there are a lot of different interpretations of the rules. Lots of people certainly selling online are not registered. And I suspect that lots of people are trying to find their way around being registered because they see it as a bit of a hassle. And why would the APHA bother with me? I'm just a small operation. I think personally that I would not want to take that risk, but there are lots of resources online. I will put in the show notes, some links to some resources for finding out more. And you can just phone the APHA up and ask them for their advice and they will tell you what they think. I'm assuming that what I've said still remains to be true, but it's always worth double checking for your specific scenario. There's also an excellent Facebook group called Plant Sellers Discussion Group UK, which is a place for UK plant sellers to discuss selling plants and stuff like plant passports and imports and exports. I recommend you join that if you are somebody who is in this business or thinking about getting into it. I'll put the link to that in the show notes. And this is something I've been thinking about because up to now I've been giving away plants and selling them uh, just locally to raise money for my local hedgehog rescue without making a profit. But I am thinking about venturing into the world of my own micro nursery next year. I just want to spend more time with plants and less time at my computer. So I'm thinking that that might be something I get into in 2022. Doing plant sales the way I think they should be done. So as sustainably and ethically as I can. So stay tuned if you're interested in that. But that will mean that I will need to register with the APHA for plant passports. And there is an online course you can do, which will allow you to prove that you know your stuff as well. I'll link to all of this in the show notes if you're interested in more. As I say, this is a UK thing. So if you are listening outside the UK, forget what I've just said and check with your local government plant agency to find out what the rules are where you are. This next question intrigued me because it showed a plant that I hadn't actually come across before. Well, I'd come across the genus, but I just couldn't figure out what the species was. Susie got in touch about a plant. She wasn't sure if it was a prayer plant or a calathea. And when I looked at the pictures, I was a bit intrigued because I could see that it was some kind of Gupertia, as they've renamed the Calathea genus, but it wasn't a leaf pattern I recognised. So a bit of a treasure hunt across the internet followed, trying to figure out exactly which plant this was. I'll put a picture in the show notes so you can see. It's got dark green and light green areas in kind of slashes, a bit like maybe Macoyana, but just longer and thinner. Hard to describe. Look at the pictures. Anyway, I searched around on the uh, interwebs and finally found that it is a hybrid between Calathea albertii and Calathea louisii, or should I say Gepertia albertii and louisii. I think that's what it is. As far as I can see, that's what we're dealing with here. And it's a very, very beautiful um, plant, actually. But Susie's plant was looking pretty grim. And I gave her my usual advice for this family, which is if you've only had the plant for a couple of months and it's looking really grim like hers is kind of full floppy and some brown edges, then it's time to have a serious look at the plant. Check for spider mites. 
back of the leaves, look for grainy white marks that indicate those skins of spider mites being sloughed off along the midrib of that leaf underside. And I also suggest looking at the roots because with these plants, often the substrate is something that will either be extremely damp or dry out and be dry as a bone. So I suggested having a look at the roots and repotting if necessary. Is it too late to repot, Jane? I hear you crying. Well, I think this plant will be fine. It'll be happier repotted than in uh, a really poor substrate, in my opinion. I think this probably does need more light. I suspect it's one of those plants that people think, oh, it's a shade plant. I'm going to put it in the shadiest corner of my room. Don't do that. Not a good idea. Um, It was in an east facing window, says Susie, and then it was moved further back. So I think that the plant probably needs to go back into that east facing window to get a bit more light. Just be careful, as I said in the conservatory question, that the leaves don't touch the cold glass, which will not do them any favours over winter. But yes, a really nice plant, actually. This hybrid between Albertii and Louisii, do look out for it. Uh, (laughs) And hopefully you'll be able to um, get it looking good again, uh, Susie, because it is a really beautiful one. But yeah, those are the main things to affect these plants when you buy them and they look gorgeous from the DIY shed or wherever. Spider mites, an inadequate substrate. What should you repot into? I should also mention that. Well, you need to... Improve the drainage, which will allow you to water a bit more, which will allow the plants to remain happier. If they are happy, these plants will fill their roots into a pot in no time at all. So you can really tell the difference when these plants aren't happy. I would take some houseplant compost, ideally peat-free if you can get hold of it, or John Innes number two, and add in a good old handful of something like perlite and about a third to two thirds um, perlite, one third perlite to two thirds houseplant compost. You could add in a little bit of activated charcoal or or maybe some a tiny bit of fine orchid bark if you choose, but it'll be absolutely fine with just a bit of perlite in there and your plant will be 100% happier. So that's a little quick guide to reviving that gapertia they're so popular and often so abused. Into the winter time, you've got to make sure also, in addition, that it's not going to sit close to a cold window, that it's not in front of a radiator, because that's the other thing they absolutely hate is a nice blast of heat. So yeah, beautiful, but sometimes a little bit tricky for the houseplant grower who's just starting out. Good luck, Susie, and let me know how you get on. Well, wasn't that fun? Thank you so much for joining me this week. I will be back next Friday. And remember, I'm always open to your questions. I answer as many of them as I can. So do drop me a line on the ledge podcast at gmail.com. And I'll see you next Friday, folks. I hope your days are packed with plants. Bye. The music you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops, The Road We Used to Travel When We Were Young 
by Komiku, Chiefs by Jazar, and Namaste by Jason Shaw. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit the show notes for details. Oh.